0: Well, good morning again. We now turn to the living and abiding Word of God. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Ma- Or Sorry, almost did it again, Matthew. Uh, we are not in Matthew, we're in Psalms. Uh, psalm 85 this morning. Psalm 85 is where we will be. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. If you weren't here last week, we looked at Psalm 80, which is a psalm set during Israel's exile. And we talked about the fact that Advent is a season of waiting, waiting on God to fulfill His promises and longing for things in this world to be made right. As Christians, we look backward and celebrate the first coming of Jesus into the world as a baby who came to eventually die to save us from our sins. But we also look forward to His second coming, where He will bring to completion that salvation that He began. As Christians, we're in this in-between position of our salvation being accomplished. Jesus has dealt the death blow to Satan, and our sin no longer stands over us in condemnation. And we are filled with His Holy Spirit. But we also haven't yet reached that blessed eternal state. We still live with the presence of sin and temptation. Our bodies and creation still groan in this fallen world. We still suffer and mourn over sin and death and disaster. And even though Jesus is on his throne, his kingdom has not yet covered this world. We are in this position that Christians often call the already, but not yet. The promises of God have already been fulfilled in Jesus, but we have not yet seen their completion in this world. Today, we turn to Psalm 85. This is another psalm that is likely set late in Israel's history. But whereas last week's psalm was set during the exile, this psalm is likely set after the return from the exile, perhaps during the time of Nehemiah or Ezra, when Israel had returned to the promised land. But remember, the return to the promised land brought with it new despair. We thought all this was over. We thought God would restore us to complete salvation and take away all His anger. We thought everything was going to be fixed by now. But it wasn't. And we can similarly feel that frustration that things are still not the way they are supposed to be. Even though Jesus has come and forgiven us and restored us to relationship with God, things still don't seem to be right. You look around at your life and you know that there are broken relationships. You see sin cropping up in you in all kinds of discouraging ways. Even though you are a Christian, you feel at times that God is far away. We are still waiting. We are still longing. We still find ourselves crying out in frustration and despair. If that is you this morning, then this psalm is for you. As all the psalms so wonderfully are, this psalm is not just God's word to you this morning but it is also God's word for you to speak back to him. So God is going to teach us this morning how to pray as a people who are in the already and not yet. People who are living in this world that is not the way that it is supposed to be, but who still put their trust and their hope in God. But before we go to his word, let's go to our God and ask for his help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, As we now read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Psalm 85. To the choir master. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. So we look at this psalm today. We're going to ask a question. We're going to ask what we are to do when God seems angry. We're going to look at that question a bit, and then we're going to see the way that this psalm teaches us to respond. It teaches us in three ways. First, that we are to cry out to God honestly, second, that we are to remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done. And then thirdly, that we are to listen to him and trust in his promises. Our psalm last week was one in the midst of distress. It talked about all these circumstances that brought on that distress. Not experiencing the blessing of being in the promised land, having the scorn and mockery of their neighbors, not functioning as a light to the nations as God had intended them, and not having the face of the Lord shining upon them. The psalm this week is also one in the midst of distress. It's also a psalm of lament. But the lament this week has one clear focus, the anger of the Lord. Verses 4 through 6 show us the heart of why the psalmist and the people cry out, to God it says, "Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Indignation, anger. These focus squarely on how God feels toward his people. And that raises all kinds of questions for us. There's a theological question about what to do with the emotions that are attributed to God in Scripture. We know that God is not an emotional God. He is unchanging. The historic church has confessed that God is impassable. That he doesn't experience emotions in the same way that human beings do. But this morning, our questions are more about this psalm. So we need to clarify a few things about the anger of the Lord in order for us to be able to hear this psalm and apply it to our lives. The first thing that we know to be true is that God is angry towards sin. The Bible tells us, in fact, that God hates sin. It was the first sin in the garden that brought about death. Sorrow and disaster. Throughout the Bible, God responds to sin with punishment and condemnation. It's important to remember places like the book of Job and John chapter 9 where we're cautioned about making a one to one correlation between an instance of suffering and a particular sin. In John 9, the disciples see a blind man and they ask Jesus, Who sinned? This man? Or his parents. And Jesus essentially says, that's not how it works. We are not told in the Bible that we can trace direct lines between instances of suffering and particular sins. But we shouldn't allow that fact to hide the connection between sin and God's anger. The Bible teaches us that God hates sin. The next thing we need to remember is that for Christians, God's wrath and judgment have been completely satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Romans 8.39 says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christianity has no place for a he loves me, he loves me not kind of mentality. If you trust in Jesus, then you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has set his love on you in eternity past, that he sent that love in flesh in Jesus Christ, And that he demonstrated his love for you permanently and fully in Jesus' death and resurrection. Nothing you do, Christian, can separate you from the love of God. But there is one more thing that we need to know that the Bible teaches about God's anger. The unchangeableness of God's love for you doesn't mean that God doesn't have a dynamic relationship with us anymore. We can fall into the danger of reducing God to principles and flattening out how he relates to us. But the Bible is clear that God is pleased by our faith and our obedience and our abiding in Jesus and trusting in him. And he is grieved and even angered by our disobedience and distrust of him. We see this in places like Ephesians 4.30, which says to believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer tells us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God's love for us and his anger at our sin are obviously not at odds with one another. We have been forgiven of our sin And the penalty no longer stands over us. But our sin still affects our relationship with God. And so we need to be careful that we don't immediately dismiss the psalmist's concern about the Lord's anger. He knows his sin and the sins of his people. He sees around him that things are not as God promised that they would be. And he is crying out to God to relent from his anger and indignation. Maybe this is you today. You might not admit it to anyone here, but you don't feel the Lord's smile upon you. You don't feel the presence and the joy of God. Instead, you look around at your life and see broken relationships and persistent sin and unfulfilled desires, and you don't know what to do. Even if that isn't you today, One of the great things about this psalm and many of the psalms is that it is a corporate psalm. It's meant for the people of God to sing together. Not because they are all feeling the exact same thing, but because the body of Christ is joined together. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, we all suffer together. This is a psalm for us. A psalm for the people of God who know that the Lord loves us and will never separate us from His love. But we also know that we still live on this side of glory. We are still a mixture of faith and unbelief. and We still live in this present evil age. But the wonderful news is that God does not leave us alone in our suffering and despair. Instead, He directs us what we should do when we feel His anger. The psalm shows us three ways that He directs us. First, He directs us to cry out to Him honestly. Second, to remember who God is and what He has done. And then thirdly, He directs us to listen to Him and trust in His promises. The first thing God directs us to do in the midst of our despair is to cry out to Him honestly. Let's read again verses 4 through 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. The prayer or the singer of this psalm doesn't restrict himself from saying this because it sounds bad. He doesn't restrain his emotions in prayer. This is the one place to open up completely about how you are feeling. He says exactly what he feels and exactly what he fears. Will you be angry with us forever? We live in an age and in a culture where authenticity rules. People have no problem saying whatever they think or feel on TV or on social media. Restraint and self-control seem to have gone out the window. And this is a bad thing. We ought to be thoughtful about what we say and about how much of our inner thoughts and our inner life we disclose to the world. But not to God. If there is any place that we ought to be 100% authentic, it is to God in prayer. The Bible says this without hesitation. Cast all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Psalm 62 tells you to pour out your heart before God. The Psalms are a perfect picture of this. Read through them and read them closely. You see things like, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Beloved, bear your soul to God in prayer. Tell Him exactly how you are feeling and what it is that you fear. Write it down if it's too hard to say out loud. Avoiding how you feel in prayer will not help alleviate how you feel day in and day out. Where are you, God? Why did you let this happen? Why does it seem like you are taking away all the good things? Why does life seem to get harder the more I follow you? The psalm teaches us that the first step in the midst of our distress is to pray to God honestly. But it never stops there. Prayers of lament are not simply venting sessions. God always calls us to more. The second thing this psalm directs us to do is to remind ourselves who God is and what he has done. We see this most clearly in verses 1 through 3. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned From your hot anger. This is a recounting of the way that the Lord has been faithful to his people in the past. As I mentioned before, this psalm was most likely written after God's people had returned from exile. So this may be a rejoicing in that act of faithfulness. Even though they deserved to be exiled and taken out of the promised land, God graciously brought them back. The psalmist is clear that this involved him forgiving their sins. He took them out from under the hand of their oppressor and brought them back to the promised land. We see this over and over in Israel's history. God's faithfulness, God saves his people from danger and oppression. And so often, they quickly forget what he has done. This psalm teaches us not to forget but to remember, to remind ourselves what God has done for us in the past. But this psalm doesn't just reflect on what God has done, it also remembers who God is. One of the interesting things about this psalm is that the language of it shows that Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is in the background. We talked about this passage last week. This is when Moses asks God if he can see his glory. Remember, God says to him, No, you can't see my face, but I will let my glory pass before you. And the way that that is described in Exodus 34 is by God declaring his character to Moses. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the classic description of the character of God that shows up again and again in the Old Testament. And we see it in the background here. Verse 2 uses the exact language saying that God forgave the iniquity of His people. Verse 7 asks God to show His steadfast love. Verse 10 pairs together the same pairing as Exodus 34. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. And then continues to reflect on the other descriptions of God's character. This is what God calls us to do in addition to our honest prayer. We should look at ourselves and pour out our heart to God, but we should never stop with looking at ourselves. God calls us instead to turn our eyes to Him. And we have the same call as Christians. In the midst of our trouble and distress, we need to remember who God is and what He has done. But for us, that's not most clearly seen in the exodus or the return from exile or even in important moments throughout your life. No, you are able to look back on the clearest expression of God's character in history, His sending of Jesus. Christian, when you doubt God's love for you, you can know that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You can know and remember that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We rehearse and repeat the salvation of God in the past so that we aren't ignorant of it where we now sit. It's possible that one of the reasons you might think that the anger of God rests upon you is because you have not reflected on the truth of the cross enough. Even if you wouldn't say it, you may think that there is something lacking in Jesus' sacrifice or that your sin is too great for Him to cover. Brothers and sisters, look to the cross. There is nothing lacking in Jesus' sacrifice there. Though your sin Is great. In the cross, you see that His grace is greater than all of your sin. Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost. Remember and remind yourself who He is and what He has done. But that isn't all that God calls us to in our distress and fear. He does call us to cry out honestly to Him in prayer and then to turn and remind ourselves of who He is and what He's done. But there's more. God does not just call us to look into the past. He also calls us to look into the future. The final thing God teaches us to do in this psalm is to listen to Him and to trust in His promises. The turning point of this psalm clearly happens in verse 8. In verse 8, the psalmist says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, right on the heels of his questions. He is determined to listen to God and his word. He has done his talking about what he is feeling. He has even done his own reflection on God. But now he has decided to listen and let God speak. Look at what he hears and his confidence that what he hears will come to pass. Look with me first at verses 8 and 9. He says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is nearer to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land." the first thing he reflects on in his hearing is that the Lord will speak peace to his people. This is so important given the fact that this psalm begins with the feeling of God's anger. The psalmist knows that God will not ultimately come in anger or enmity or wrath, but in peace to his people. This is the most direct answer to his questions in verse 5 about whether the anger of the Lord will last forever. The answer is no. He knows that God has promised to speak peace to his people. And remember, peace in the Bible is not just the absence of conflict or a ceasefire. It's the word shalom, which means completeness or wholeness. The psalmist is confident that the whole favor of God will rest upon His people. Verse 9 says, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. God's salvation, likewise, isn't just the lack of condemnation. It's the restoration that we see in verses 1 and 4. You can see that in the second half of this verse when it describes and defines what the result is. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. And that kind of sounds like a churchy phrase, so it's easy for us to pass over, but we should not pass over it. Glory dwelling in the land is the heart of the promise of the Bible. God's covenant promise ever since the exile of Adam and Eve from his presence in the garden is I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you as your God. This is what God is communicating in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. The glory of God came to fill them to show that he dwelt among his people. And the psalmist is confident that God will stay true to his covenant promises, that he will not leave them, but that he will come to dwell Amongst them. And while the psalmist listened to the word of God and clung to his promises, we know that we have a more sure word and the firm establishment of those promises. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God's promises were just as real in the Old Testament, but they were distant and hard to see. But in the coming of Jesus Christ, God's promises take on flesh and blood. We see these promises coming to fulfillment from the very beginning of Jesus' coming. What is the message that the angels proclaim in Luke 2? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is the peace that God speaks to his people. Jesus also is the salvation of his people. The words of the angel to Joseph say this most clearly. He says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant promise, because he is God himself, who has left heaven to dwell with his people. John 1 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus shows us that God's promises are not empty. They are not trite little dreams to make us feel better. They are trustworthy and true. And these promises are exactly what we need during Advent. When we look at the incarnation of Jesus, we see God's faithfulness to His promises. We see that He brought peace to His people in Jesus. That the glory of God did come to dwell with His people. But we also know that He is not done yet. He doesn't just call us to look back, but also to look forward. Jesus' peace and salvation have already begun, but there is still a not-yet aspect to them. We still look around the world and our own lives, and we see strife and war and evil. We don't see that promised shalom. We know that our sins have been paid for, and there is no more condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. But the presence of sin still lingers in our hearts and lives. And even though Jesus has visited us and has given us His Holy Spirit to dwell amongst us, there is still a future time when He will return, not to visit, but, take, but to take up permanent residence as our King and Savior. Those still future promises are what the psalmist looks to in verses 10 through 13. They're so poetic and they use such lofty language that we can easily just hear white noise. But these promises are the promises that God's character, what is true of who God is, will one day all come together in the new heavens and the new earth, our future home where God will dwell as our King. Let's read these verses together again, beginning in verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. What we need to understand, if we are to get the beauty of these verses, is the apparent contrast between all these attributes of God that are being talked about. The word righteousness shows up three times in these verses. It's the same word that's translated justice elsewhere. It means that God is true to who He is. That He will not tolerate evil, but He will destroy it. Faithfulness is a similar idea in the New Testament. This is the word that's translated truth in the New Testament. That God is true to what He said He would do. We've already seen Talked about peace, which is not dealing with His people in wrath or anger, but in mercy. Steadfast love is God's covenant love and kindness to His people. These are all things that we see in tension. How is it possible that God can be just and faithful to His character and at the same time be merciful and peaceful toward us sinners? How is it possible for His covenant love and His anger at sin to coexist? These are questions that come right out of that description of God's character in Exodus 34. How can God be a God who will by no means clear the guilty, but who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin? The truth is we often feel these things the most in our prayers. We know that we are called to pray for our enemies, but their sin has done real harm. And so we care about God's justice as well. We pray for the wars in Israel and Ukraine and we want peace, but we also know that awful things have been done and so we long for justice. We feel this tension in our prayers. And we know from the teaching of the New Testament that the answer to all of these apparent tensions, is shown in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, the exact imprint of his Father's nature. John tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth, which is the Greek translation of the beginning of verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness. But it's not just that Jesus embodies these, he demonstrates them at the cross. At the cross, God demonstrated his perfect justice and righteousness towards sin. He would by no means clear the guilty. He fully punished every single sin of his people in the death of Jesus. But in the cross, God's kindness and steadfast love poured out on us sinners because he took his judgment on himself instead of pouring it out on us. The result is that we have peace with God. The cross is where Jesus secured our salvation, where God showed his anger at sin alongside his unceasing love for us. And it's because of the cross that even in this not yet time of waiting and longing, we can still have confidence in our prayers. Your prayers are filled with the not yetness of the world, your failing health the difficulty of your work, the sin and selfishness that still wreak havoc in your life. But because of Jesus, when you cry out, How long, O Lord? You can know that the answer is not forever. Even though we still live in a world of evil and destruction, we know a time is coming when righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Even though heaven and earth seem so far apart, we know a day is coming when faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. We will hear a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He is making all things new. Would you all pray with me? Father, we long for that day. We long for that day as we look around at the world and we long for that day as we look inside at our own hearts that you will make all things and us new. Would you come quickly, Lord Jesus? Would you come quickly to fulfill your promises? But as we wait, would you cause us to wait in faithfulness? Faithfulness and hope and trust in you.